Hey everybody, what's up? It's your friend Chase. Happy to be in your ears. Grateful to be with you for a moment. And I'm very excited to share something special. So Creative Live, uh, not too long ago, collaborated with a design firm called Civilization to produce a design lecture series called Conversations About Design Culture and Creativity. And that is one of these conversations is what I would like to share with you today. It was a very special live event. Um, and the lecture is given by Paula Scher, one of the world's most acclaimed graphic designers, Barnum, and has pushed the boundaries of visual communication for, gosh, for decades, for three decades at least. Um, Paula began her career as an art director in the 70s, uh, was very well known for eclectic typography. And since around 1991, um, she joined the New York design con uh, consultancy called Pentagram, which is absolutely renowned. Um, some of the identities she created were Tiffany and Company, Citibank, among others. And she has become a just an idol among anyone seeking to create or regenerate um, brands at, the, at that level. Um, all kinds of other crazy clients like Coke and Bloomberg and the MoMA and the Met and Shake Shack. And, uh, but Paula is truly a legend. Um, she's also got an amazing episode of Netflix abstract series. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but if not, it's an excellent documentary series, uh, on Netflix that, um, features her. Uh, it's also, you can check it out on, on YouTube if you don't have Netflix, but, um, Paula is a true legend, and there's so much wisdom baked into this lecture. Now, given that this is a lecture that I'm sharing with you that was, again, rather private early, uh, now that we can consume this in audio, she does refer to a number of images that are part of a slideshow. But trust me, this talk is still absolutely oozing with value, even though it's in audio form. And if you're curious, um, I have included a few shots and a little more background over on my blog, which is just chasejarvis.com slash blog. So um, again, enjoy this, this uh, brilliant and insightful lecture by the legendary Polisher. Um, I can't wait to hear what you think, and I'm going to get out of the way and let you dive right in. Enjoy. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Look, after a successful photography career and directing and shooting all over the world with the top brands, I started to feel a tug in a new direction. What if I could share everything I learned across more than a decade and help other creators and entrepreneurs navigate their own journeys more effectively? I kept pulling on this thread around lifelong learning and in 2009, I started Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. Creators and entrepreneurs, hobbyists to full-time professionals have all leveled up with their careers and their lives through taking courses on Creative Live. And to be fair, they also make this show happen. They make it possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, I encourage you to check it out right now. This is where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photography, video, art, design, music, and audio craft and maker classes, plus the ability to make a living and a life in any one or all of those disciplines. Now, since day one, Creative Live have been committed to sharing free content 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So there's always something they're playing amongst our 10,000 hours of content. But the real win is the subscription. 
Now, you all know that I'm a huge believer in the power of habits, and you've probably heard me talk on the show about how small daily choices add up to design and create the life that we actually live. Now, Creative Live, as a sponsor here in this announcement, wants you to know that they have a new powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That is the subscription that I was just talking about. How can you get the Creator Pass? And with the Creator Pass, you can find new areas to develop your skills. You don't have to worry about just buying one class. This allows you to improve your craft, consider making money if you want to with whatever it is that you're trying to do, to pull on your own threads of curiosity and explore. If you're ready to invest in yourself and take the reins for this one precious life that you've got, then subscribing to Creative Live is designed to push you in this direction. Sign up for Creative Live today. I just want to start by, by really thanking civilization for this amazing event that they do. I think. It's, it's phenomenally generous, um, and I want to come to them. I think, I think it's just fantastic, and the library is a beautiful place. I'm glad you could all be here, and uh, I hope you all ask questions because I love them, and let's get down to it. So because we're in this nice social situation, and uh, this is a free event, I decided to put together work that is work I do that is either for free or for public places and spaces in my little town of New York City. So um, I've been working in New York City uh, on lots of public places for about the past 10 or 15 years, and some of, that, some of the places even longer. And everything I selected are either things that I've done very recently or are still ongoing and sometimes the relationships uh, continue and evolve. For those of you who don't know anything about it, the High Line is an old train track. It was a, an elevated train that came down to an area of New York City called Chelsea, where the meat market was, and it delivered the cattle to New York City restaurants. And in 2000, there were two community organizers who came around and asked me to design a logo for this place that they wanted to turn into a New York City park. And at that time, I had no idea where the High Line was or that this thing ever existed. What had happened to it was that the train tracks were left in the middle of a, a busy urban neighborhood, and it was up high, so you couldn't get up there because it was closed off, and all these weeds had grown in. And I, I went up and I walked over this thing and it was absolutely amazing because you saw New York City from the second floor. And uh, I, I fell in love with it, I just thought it was astounding. So I thought, okay, I'll give these guys a free logo. The reality of, of it was these two people, uh, Robert Hammond and Joshua David, had no experience uh, whatsoever with any form of urban development. They'd never worked with city government. They'd never made a park. They were just two community organizers in Chelsea who thought they could save this thing. So the organization that they were representing was called Friends of the High Line. And uh, they were the fundraising organization and they were going through their neighborhood and they were getting people with money to give money to build this park. 
I thought, well, this is easy. You know, it's a railroad track. It's an H. How hard is that? There's the logo. It didn't take very long. It was a free job. I was really happy to do it. <laughs> it was fine. I showed it to them, and uh, they said, no, it's Friends of the High Line. I said, that's a really bad track. <laughs> Year, years later, they're still saying there should have been a logo for Friends of the High Line, but we all live with this. So we made, we made stationery, and we did uh, promotions for them, and we did these things for them for a period of eight years. We made uh, books and documents and put on shows about the High Line, raised money for them, and uh, made all these objects that were swag, and little by little, um, this thing became publicized and became a reality. The city actually gave money to it, and uh, there were matching funds from uh, New York State against the fundraising. We had this crazy show in Grand Central Station where it was an open competition to design it. And then finally, there was really big money, and they had a real grown-up competition with an invited group of architects and uh, field operations in Diller Scafidio won and uh, began planning it. And we ran campaigns to fund the building of it called I Built the High Line. And people stood in front of a picture of the High Line and had their pictures taken. And they were sniped around the city. And more people gave money. And then there were more party invitations for rich people. And rich people came. And they gave even more money. And then there were even more fancy galas and anniversaries and parties and money and money and money. And then suddenly, there was the real thing. And uh, this happened and opened in 2008, and we did the signage for it. And you can walk up on top of the High Line and see New York, and it's quite a terrific experience if you've never been there. And then this funny thing happened with it. Um, by the way, when it first opened, this was the cartoon in the New Yorker, which I loved um, because it showed that dogs weren't allowed up there, and it was everybody's dogs sort of tied to the trestle. And uh, I liked the cartoon because they had to use my logo so you knew it was the High Line, so that was fantastic. <laughs> but then this funny thing happened, and, uh, and why I'm back involved with it again was that over the period of time that it opened, the neighborhood developed. The real estate developers built more and more fancy buildings. The, the value of the neighborhoods went up. Poor people were priced out. And this thing that started as the most optimistic, wonderful thing from a community board in terms of making a public park for, for uh, New York City, and now the biggest tourist attraction in New York City, is it changed the quality and life of the neighborhood. So there's an administration now that actually thinks that this is a bad thing. And so we have to go back and readdress how we think about this place and how people use it, because it is quite a wonderful thing. And it put me directly in touch with what happens with your best motivations when money is involved and how neighborhoods shift. We make these things for the public good, and yet somehow we don't totally serve the public good. And it is the question that we, I grapple with all the time when I work for not-for-profits. This is a similar situation, but I don't think the same thing will happen. Um, Hurricane St Sandy devastated the coast of New York. When you think of New York City, you don't think of beaches, but in fact, New York City is rimmed with them. And uh, there are boardwalks, and there are communities, and their commu the community incomes and livelihoods depend on their beach activity. 
And this is a picture of the Rockaway Beach after um, Hurricane Sandy. The community couldn't wait for a new boardwalk to be built. They had to open the beaches right away because they would lose all their revenue. So uh, I was part of a group that was helping to rebuild the boardwalk, and my job was to create a sign system structure that uh, enabled people to traverse this area and go past the construction to the beach. <clears throat> I realized that it was very emotional because these neighborhoods were devastated, and we wanted to do something that was more than a street sign, but to put back some civic pride. This is sort of what's on the beaches. This is what New York City sign systems look like. They're warning signs. They're really depressing. Not hard to beat, but there they are. I thought that you could do something that would be an emotional sign system. If the, if the hurricane had destroyed the boardwalk, the beach remained, and the beaches were new, unique to a given area. So I thought you could take a picture of the beach as you entered the beach, and they would all be the same, and they would all be different. So we took photographs of every beach and created this system, um, which were then turned into uh, postcards and memorabilia, and um, the neighborhoods really felt great about it because they, they felt like they were being paid attention to. Then there was a, a, a navigational system that got you to walk past the construction on the beach where the boardwalk was being built, and the blue signs, which stuck way up, were a way of seeing how many blocks you had to walk before you went back into town. And you could tell where to turn by painting the girders uh, a bright yellow. And then we redid the, uh, all the warning signs, so it was a, a design thing. Now, here's something that was interesting to me, was these pods that were built by uh, an architecture firm called uh, Garrison were beautiful and we loved them, but when they were on the beaches, they were a total uh, failure because the community felt that they looked like army barracks and depressing. Um, because on the beach, color has to be bright. And they were almost too tasteful for the beach life, so they're rethinking them. I think they could just probably paint them. What we did do is paint all these cement buildings that were on the beach, and we painted them with um, maps of the area in very bright colors. And this is all running up and down the coast of the Rockaways. The next project was to rebuild the boardwalk itself. And uh, I worked with an architect named Claire Weiss. And she had developed this planking system um, that was wavy on one side where you could ride a bike and then straightened out. And what we did is we took the uh, form of the planks, which I'm showing you here, and each one of these planks is 30 feet wide. So uh, the whole space that I'm showing you of these four sets of planks is um, you know, 120 feet. And uh, we turned it into typography and made this typeface that we named Rockaway Wide. Uh, we contend it's the biggest pixel in the world. And we made swag out of it. Um, and if you fly into Kennedy Airport, you fly right over this. Um, so you can see it at day and at night. We'll see what happens to that neighborhood. <laughs> I think they'll be fine. I do a lot of um, work for an organization called the Robin Hood Foundation in New York, which builds charter schools. And I, I began this quite by accident. Um, 
and it was largely for because of a school I had done some work with in um, New Jersey, in Newark. It was a, a Lucent Center of Technology donation to an acting school that was part of the New Jersey Performing Arts Center. And I made a very important discovery doing this job, and that was there was an existing building that I had to change, and there was no budget for changing it. And I found the cheapest thing I could do to, to change the, ex the exterior of the building was to paint it. And the discovery I made was that if you make a Photoshop rendering of a building with typography on it or some kind of color system on it, and you show it to your client and your client likes it, what you make ends up looking exactly like the Photoshop rendering. And it changed everything for me. It wasn't like doing a book jacket where it never looked like anything like the thing came out after five years of the making changes. The building looked like the Photoshop rendering. This building looked like this. It was uh, an old rectory building and pretty grim in a rough neighborhood. And uh, we covered it with typography, um, what went on in the building. The uh, people who painted it were um, sign painters who painted sides of garages, like things like flats fixed. And this was their best job they ever had. And they, they'd climb up in the building and they'd say, uh, uh, Paula, uh, we, we found that your letter spacing between the T and the E wasn't right, and we, we corrected it for you. And, uh, <laughs> And thank God they did, they did a great job. The best part of the building were the air conditioning ducts. That was really hard, they had to run over spaces and, and really do this thing. So as a result of that, I began getting calls to do schools, which has become um, a, a very popular activity, both in public and private schools. Um, uh, there's this sort of messaging that exists in charter schools that is, are all motivational. Um, this uh, particular school system called Achievement First, what you're looking at is a series of stickers I did not design. They were a color system. The kids were given these slogans, and they put them on their books, and they put them in their lockers, and they wanted me to use this for the building, which I did, um, and just made the stickers enormous by painting them on walls and painting them in stairwells, and in gymnasiums, and in the music room. And I would love to, I love doing this sort of thing because I really like the, the um, city employees and the contract people who paint these things. They get, if they're painting a straight wall with flat color, it's really quite boring. But this is a true challenge. I remember when I showed it to these um, two workers, they said, lady, you crazy. And then they went and did it, and it's gorgeous. It's just really terrific. Here's a school we did uh, about a year ago, and it's really the same thing, but the difference is that it's in tile instead of in paint. Um, and uh, the, the workmanship is just beautiful in this you know, charter school that um, is in a very rough section of Red Hook, and the kids just love it. And it's wonderful doing this sort of thing because, you know, this is the point of it. This is different. Uh, the new school is um, founded in 1919, and it's a school for um, progressive studies. It was supposed to uh, lead public thought and engagement. And in uh, 1972, it bought Parsons School of Design. And uh, Parsons School of Design 
is about three times the size of the new school in both population and reputation. And the new school wanted to get its identity back, and Parsons, of course, wants to keep its identity. They had done a pile of research about the perceptions of the new school, and the new school came off very weak against Parsons and actually had to do a lot of thinking about what their offer was. And they, they came to the conclusion that what they needed to do was to be design-infused learning. And they, what, what they meant by that was that you could go to Parsons and you could, you could be studying design, but you could be taking your anthropology courses and your social sciences at the new school and be a better designer as a result of it. Or you could be a journalism major at Parsons and take design, a, a journalism major at the new school and go to Parsons and take design. And you could integrate your learning so that whatever profession you were in, you, were, you had broader thinking skills. To do that, they wanted to change the whole spirit of what, how the school related and perhaps even the name of the school. Um, we looked at uh, what they had over a million years and they had redesigned this school a lot. Um, the new school had a lot of schools attached to it. They had a, the Manus School of Music that was a very um, important classical music school, but they also had a different school for jazz, and you didn't know why they weren't in, were in the same division, and then you found out it was the way people gave money. Um, they had a, a, a method of um, naming schools based on what the programs were sometimes, and then named based on people another time, so you couldn't tell which school was what. It seems like the three famous schools was Parsons, Manus, and their liberal arts college, Lang, and it could have been called Parsons, Manus, Lang, or it could have been the new school and been uh, design, liberal arts, and um, performing arts, which would also make sense. But you couldn't do either of them because every time you did it, you ran into another donor. We thought they'd never be able to name the school and we'd never finish the job. This is the landscape of what schools look like, uh, particularly their competitors. And it seems like people either have a, a serif face or a sans serif face. And if they have a sans serif face, they're supposed to look modern. If they have a serif face, they're supposed to relate to some kind of Ivy Leaguedom. And uh, if you look at UAL, which is what we Pentagram did uh, for the school in, in England, um, Parsons and the new school probably needed something like this, some sort of hierarchical thing that listed what was going on in that organization. But we couldn't get any decision made, a name, uh, taken about the name because they couldn't, they couldn't resolve it. So I realized you had to do what I call design for indecision, meaning, <laughs> meaning you make something that's essentially neutral that it doesn't matter what the hell it says because it'll look okay once you change it. And that's what, that's what we were doing. <laughs> so I made a lot of, of sketches of hierarchies and uh, I found that they were using um, a font in one building that was designed by a type designer named Peter Belock, and that the buildings themselves had these series of stripes. Initially, I did something with a squared type that was actually designed in 1929, but everybody hated it because they thought it looked like Atari for some reason, and I said, what student knows what Atari is now? <laughs> Seemed to make any sense to me. So we then, um, thought that the striping on the building was something that could be recognized, and that SOM had built a new version of it uh, on Fifth Avenue, and this was the type that had the Peter Belock type. 
And the Peter B-like type existed in all these various faces because it was supposed to differentiate the schools, but when you listed them, they didn't really work together. So I took the Peter B-lock type, used the most ordinary version of it, stacked it like this with two lines, enabled them to make it in three lines if they had to, and then coupled it with the secondary schools, not unlike what you saw with UAL. That was the response from the faculty. They just thought this thing was dull as dishwater. Now I had at this point been working with them for almost a year because um, they couldn't make a decision about the name of the school. And so um, I thought, oh God, these guys are going nuts on me. So I thought, all right, we'll extend it. They said, no, no, not enough. Okay. All right, we put it there, and then I got this comment. Okay, make them a little wider. Then they said, no. <laughs> so we took them down a bit. At this particular point of craziness in time, I realized that I had put together a situation where there were three widths of this typography. It was a face called Irma that Peter Belak had designed. And that it could probably be programmed in a way that it would create a kind of a language that would be unique to the school. So if they, the school would be recognizable no matter what it said, and that if they changed the names of the schools in the, in the middle of it, it didn't matter because you'd be recognizing the form, not the name. And we redrew this thing so it was programmable, working in three sizes. This is the controversial W you're looking at that was widened uh, so that the counters didn't fill in and that when you break it down into the headings of the schools, these were all individually crafted, but in fact, when they hang together, once you look at it, they're really interchangeable, even though individually all of the uh, names of the schools have their own character established to it. There was secondary type for hierarchy, and then ultimately we programmed the thinner font of Irma too. So the secondary schools have the same thing happening to them with a lighter weight. And in fact, the new school logo can change every year because there are 13 configurations and possibilities of how those letter forms can work together. So this is a system that the school can make do whatever they want to do. Right now, they're doing some wonderful things with it. I'm really rather excited with it. So we made this thing, and it launched uh, last March, and then all hell broke loose. But it really is very identifiable in New York City, because you can recognize it without a logo, just by beginning to see the typography. And it works especially well in digital media. Uh, if you go to the website right now, it looks exactly like this. Um, very rock solid. And then we made all the swag and the things for the, that the kids have at school and the in-house art department started taking it over and we uh, are working on the science system now for the whole school. We did this for the opening and the launch of the site, which went up very quickly. 
and the students began making things, and the students participated in this mural that's around the elevators and the water tower. So I love working for museums, and um, usually they hire me to solve very specific problems. Either it's a renovation or a perceptual change. And in the case of the Philadelphia Museum of Art, it was both. Uh, Frank Gehry's renovating the museum. He's digging a tunnel under its very broad staircase that's very famous. And uh, we're, um, we began redesigning the identity two years ago. It launched last year, and it's an ongoing operation. You must recognize this. This is um, the famous front of the Philadelphia Museum of Art that nobody knows what it is. It's famous because Rocky Balboa ran up the steps and jumped up and down. And people come to Philadelphia, and they go to the steps of the Philadelphia Museum, and they run up the steps, and they jump up and down, and they never go into the museum. <laughs> it's a really serious problem. To make matters worse, uh, Sylvester Stallone gave the museum this gold statue of himself. And the mayor of the city made them put it in front of the museum, which horrified every curator. So they, they sort of hid it behind a tree, but it can't go away. Try living with that. What's sad about this is this place has a great art collection. It's a terrific museum. It really underrated a true treasure, and it deserves much more than this. So uh, my job was to actually get people to know what it was and where it is and that there's lots of art in it. Um, here's a problem. If you go to the, uh, take the train into uh, Philadelphia and you get off the station and you say, take me to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, they say, where is that? It's practically right next to the train station. But the cab driver never knows, and then you tell him, oh, it's the big thing on the hill. You know, the thing Rocky ran up the steps of. He says, oh, that's the art museum. Because they don't call it the Philadelphia Museum of Art, because they're in Philadelphia, and they don't really care about it. <laughs> so if you look at the sign and the arrow, and it says art museum. This was their previous logo, and there's nothing wrong with it. It was uh, designed in Avenir, which they, they used throughout the building, I think, quite well and it had this griffin that's carved into the building. Uh, but the problem is it looks somewhat like a school and nobody knows where the griffin comes from and it looks like on that temple, and it looks like the whole place is an edifice that is sort of um, uh, a little foreboding. Also, ironically, there was Drexel University about a block away and they had this dragon. <laughs> It sort of seemed like maybe you wouldn't confuse them, but they're both kind of flying things with little claws, et cetera, and it sort of didn't seem right. I thought they should get rid of the, the griffin, and you know, people wanted to hang on to it as a pet, and I said, you know, let's just kill it. And, and, and we did. Uh, the, the griffin has, has gone away. And what we did is, is take um, the avenir, redraw it, and then create a system by which the A could continually change um, to demonstrate the breadth of the artwork inside the museum. And uh, we drew them about 200 A's, and uh, we said, well, you can pick five different ones for your stationery, and nobody could make a choice. It was really quite crazy. And uh, 
they picked the most conservative A's that you barely can tell the difference on the stationery. When we show artwork front and center, we leave it neutral, uh, like in things like the annual reports, etc., and all their um, literature. But digitally, the A's move, and we use them for things that you get when you come to the museum, like tickets and badges, and it becomes uh, things that they sell in the art store and um, uh, becomes the play part of the museum or in children's uh, projects. And uh, to launch it, uh, they uh, had the show on the renovation that Frank Gehry was going to achieve, so I had him draw these four A's that he very graciously did, and that's how we, that's how we began to use it, which was a lot of fun. I have a, a, a person who is running the art department there. His name is Louis Bravo. Um, he's worked with me before at Jazz and Lincoln Center and at um, uh, the Metropolitan Opera when I redesigned that. And I'm very big on building in-house art departments. So I'll, I'll take people that I know who I've either taught or have worked for me, and I'll install them uh, to set up the department, and then what they do is they build very good departments, so when they leave and go someplace else, there's someone to take it over and the identities stay intact. This is really important when you're designing for institutions because you give them a kit of parts and they can't execute it. Um, very often, um, I'll see uh, something that we've designed at Pentagram and I'll see only the original comps we did and nothing that ever followed because it got messed up after the thing launched. So I think that part of the project in these um, living, breathing identities is to figure out how do they continue and grow and get better while you're not doing it. And so um, I'm really thrilled with what Lewis did. For example, at the beginning of the project, they didn't want to invest in um, redigitizing and redrawing the Avenir, but Lewis was capable of getting that done about um, three months ago and uh, could create all the products with it in relationship to being able to redraw the font. Now he's working with me on the uh, building signage and every day this thing gets bigger and stronger and more visible and it is a long, long process. I think it'll take four years to actually get through converting everything that has to be converted in this mammoth place. Uh, but it's terrific to see it happen, and I think my, my favorite piece of press on it uh, was from this little rag called Celebrity in, in, in Philadelphia. <laughs> if you can read it, I'll read it for you. And when all is said and done, the combined projects, meaning Gary and the identity, will amount to the most intense efforts any human being, human being or organization have ever taken to wash the stink of Sylvester Stallone <laughs> off themselves. <laughs> Can't do better than that. This project um, is something I um, accomplished last year, and it is a complete surprise to me. And what I love about it is how little I had to do with its engagement and success, and how a public can make their own spirit of design happen and their own relationship with something. Uh, I, had, I had a call um, from a former client of mine, a, a director named George C. Wolfe, who used to be at the Public Theater. And he went on the board of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, 
they have a logo that looks like this, and the logo seems to be related to the building. I don't totally understand it. It's a brand new building. And they asked me to make a mural, uh, which, is, which you're seeing, for the front of the building. And the mural was composed of um, posters that they had sent. And what was fascinating about the whole issue was initially in the lobby, they had intended on hanging these posters for civil rights organizations all over the world. And when you looked at them, the posters weren't that engaging. And they weren't that engaging if you didn't know the cause, especially if it was in another language, because they actually aren't great pieces of graphic design. Like I looked at it and I thought, oh, silence equals death. That one's really good, because I knew that one. But if you didn't know them, it seemed very other. So I took the posters, cut them into radiated strips, and, and, and inserted a hand in the middle of it. And this thing is 30 feet wide by 14 feet high. And it sits in the front of the museum like this. And it's actually dimensional, though you can't tell from the photograph. I did this quickly because they didn't have anything to go up in the space, and they, want, they were opening in a month. So I designed this thing. I gave them a plan on how to build it. I've never seen it. I've never been there. I have no idea about what it actually really looks like in person, except for the images I've seen. You see it from outside the building, and you see it at night. And on the opening of this thing, somebody discovered if they walked up and they put their hand on the glass, it matched the hand in the mural. So people started taking pictures of it. It happened almost instantaneously that people would go there and take pictures of their hands. These are things I pulled off Twitter. This was like the first week it had opened. There was all this crazy stuff that started happening where it became this call to action. It was your way of touching the history. <laughs> School kids go there all the time. They have a daily influx of it. It's actually a terrific museum from what I've heard. I've never seen it. It's a big spot to have your picture taken. And this was in the New York Times. Um, almost every civil rights leader makes a pilgrimage there. They have dance classes there. They made swag out of it. And then they made an app out of it. And what the app does is it tells you what the posters are. So that the thing that it was supposed to be at the beginning that would not have resonated because you would not have gotten it because of the emotional connection you have to the art there. You can um, click on the app. And we shot this, by the way, from an image on my computer because I've never been there. They sent me the app, and I just did this right off my computer, and it pulls it up, and you can see what the poster is and find out what the cause was. And it does the whole thing, its own interactive piece. I've been working uh, in New York City for theaters for a long time. Um, and so I'm going to show you two, uh, one that I just did very recently and one that I've been working on for 24 years. Uh, I redesigned uh, the Atlantic Theater, which was founded by uh, William Macy and David Mamet. It seats about 150 people. It's where Spring Awakening came from. It has terrific shows, and nobody knows what it is or where it is. And the reason it doesn't is because it's the way they promoted themselves. 
They promote themselves like this. They have a play, they get somebody to make a poster for it. The posters don't have any connection to each other. Only 150 people see the play. If they see the play, they don't know that the play before it came from the same place because there's nothing connecting it. And if something goes to Broadway, it gets its own identity anyway, so people don't know that Spring Awakening came from the Atlantic Theater because there's no memory of it. Now, I had made the same discovery a bit with the public theater, which is the, the project that I've worked on for a long time, that actually in these small repertory groups, the identity of the place is much more important than the individuality of the program because it's the level of the theater that matters. I mean, it, it, uh, the Atlantic Theater is totally funded. They can't make money on 150 seats, so they have to be supported as the organization. They also have an acting school that's tied with NYU, and uh, they have a very high reputation in people in theater, but the outer world doesn't know them. So I took the letter A uh, from the word Atlantic, and created a, a spotlight, a megaphone, um, whatever you want to call it, as a basis for housing typography uh, that would be their plays and their season. And they could promote, uh, and then they would have individualistic little images inside uh, brochures or postcards or as web banners online and this is the way they promote themselves. And it really is amazing that it was one of the most seen and recognized things almost instantaneously when it launched. I haven't had that happen in a long time. But it was as if everybody suddenly discovered what the Atlantic Theater was. And they've been rolling out their shows, and you see this in subways around town. And suddenly, it's a sense of place and an identity. And um, the big problem is, how do you evolve it in the next season? Now, I, I've been working, thinking about how these things grow and evolve for a long time. And when I started doing the public theater in 1994, I thought about visual language really very much in the same way Parsons was, that there would be some typographic family that you would recognize that would be the public. And this is my early sketch for it in, in 94 and the way we did the advertising in 94. But then what I do is individualistic posters that sort of had a connective style. And uh, this was problematic in and of itself because the posters weren't seen enough because the plays weren't big enough. The only thing that was ever recognized individually was bring into noise, bring into fun, because it went to Broadway. But most of the other things, except for graphic designers, nobody remembers any of those images. So that when Chicago came out, which had a much bigger budget and used a typographic system not unlike this, people thought that that was the look of Chicago. So I began changing the, the, the posters uh, for each play and just using the public logo like what the Atlantic Theater was doing, but it buried the lead, which was the theater. In the summer, I did this Shakespeare Festival in the typographic style of it, but then I would change it each year, and it began to lose its identity. In 2008, with a new director, I decided, well, it has to have um, a stronger look that's, that's the same all the time, like what I did with the Atlantic. 
And we did this for lots of materials, but the public theater is a lot bigger than the Atlantic Theater, and they also have Joe's Pubs, so they're making so much stuff that it became monotonous. In 2010, I redesigned the lobby of the theater, and uh, we uh, embedded the typography into the walls, and there's um, the Shakespeare machine that was designed by um, Ben Rubin, and I made him digitize champion the public's face, and it runs um, 39 Shakespeare plays and blades on the chandelier. And the typography is all embedded in the walls and around arches. It's inset. The donor's walls are bricks popping out. And the posters are encapsulated behind the box office and uh, around the building. I knew that I couldn't do individual posters for the, the shows anymore, that they had to have a connected look, but there had to be a way that they wouldn't be monotonous. So the, the season after the, we had launched the lobby, we did this poster for um, the Shakespeare Festival in the summer. It was a comedy of errors and love's, love's labor lost. And I liked the color system, and I thought, well, you could use the color system um, for an entire year, and whatever stylistic nuance the poster had, you could repeat it in a lot of materials, and it would hang together. Now, at the public theater, there's a woman named Kirsten Huber, who was my student four years ago, and she's the art director inside the public theater, and she's got a staff of about five people, and they make a myriad of things, and they make all the Joe's pub promotions and tons and tons of crapple that has to be made every day, web banners, all kinds of stuff, um, e-blasts. And we created this system, and she sends me PDFs of this every day, and it all has one tied together unified look. And just at the point where you're really bloody sick of the damn thing, it's the next season, and we change it again. So the following year, this was, this was two years ago, the following year, there was a, a, a comedy and a dark drama, and I designed this uh, poster that was much ado about nothing in King Lear, and I loved the skewing of it, but I didn't really like the color in the posters. So what we did is we took the skewing form and just made it black, white, and yellow, and did another whole season out of it. So it hangs together like that. And you can differentiate the plays somewhat in imagery, obviously, but it's more the totality than the individual thing. There are millions of workshops. There are all kinds of labs. Um, there is, it is such an active, exciting place with so much going on and so much to promote. It's a great job for the kids. They really love it. Um, and we're building this stuff all the time. This was this uh, past season's poster. And in this poster, I slashed through typography. And I realized if you could slash through typography uh, in a cut way, you could, you could slash through um, uh, photography as well. So this became the basis for this year's season that we're still building out. And here it starts to become individual plays and promotions and more plays. 
These are one-off things that go on. They're like one-night performances at Joe's Pub, and they get really raunchy as Joe's Pub gets. Joe's Pub has a show a night, just to give you a sense of how much is getting promoted. This is, this is an, a daily labor done by four kids. So what has been interesting to me is this balance of building identity systems, figuring out how they live and breathe and how they get carried out. And I couple that, because it's instantaneous and done often with other people, with this sort of very personal work I do that is this map painting. And I do them on weekends at my country house. And there's a book here on the maps. This is the cover of the book. The painting is about 14 feet wide by um, nine feet high. A painting of Africa. This was 10 feet by 10 feet. A painting of Manhattan. A painting of London. These things go on all the time. And I got known for it, and uh, as a result of it, I was asked uh, from the 1% uh, for the Arts Commission of New York City to do a design or create a mural for a public high school. And it wasn't the same as my environmental graphics. It was, it was through a city commission, and there were certain rules to it. And this was the space. The blue area was the space for the mural, and they thought a map of Manhattan would be nice, or a map of Queens where the school was. And I looked at it, and I thought it'd be quite awful, actually. Um, looking at it in that space, it seemed absolutely dreary. And what I thought would be interesting, because the space has a skylight, would be to create something that used the whole area that was going to be used for PTA meetings and for uh, special events. This is the painting I created for it, but to sell it, I actually used one of my original paintings, the uh, painting of Manhattan. And we broke it up into a virtual reality uh, form like this to show them how the painting could actually fill the walls and how it could cover every inch of the space being that was 22 feet high and started about 10 feet off the ground. The tile went up 10 feet. And it was on two levels, and there was a catwalk, and you could, you could walk inside Queens or all of New York City. So this, is, this, is, this virtual reality was from the actual painting, but when I went down to compete for the commission, I really won it because I went in with a piece like this because it showed how you could think about the space. So what happened here is design married painting and uh, we took the painting and we broke it up into these um, large-scale panels that was a repainting of my painting. I hired a sign painter and we projected um, the painting onto the wall at the uh, uh, Brooklyn Navy Yard where we rented some space. Here I am holding up the original painting against the scale so you can see how much bigger it is. And the painting is broken up into these panels that were like, I think, about four by eight feet. And the panels are all painted. There's canvas on the panels. It's then screwed into the wall and assembled this way. And it has to be removable in case of a fire or a flood. It has to be fire resistant. There had to be a special surface put on the top of it. So when I did it, um, the uh, school teachers who were on the committee proofread the painting. 
they found 25 misspellings. <laughs> so I had, I had to go and I had to correct all the misspellings. It really didn't take long. You do it by hand, that's fine. The second painting, because there were two atriums, was an area of Queens, and they had asked me to demonstrate all the languages they speak in Queens, of, of which there are at least 20. Um, and you know, there's Korean, and there's Chinese, and there's Japanese, and there's Greek, and there's Russian, and there's some Arabic, there's you know, Farsi, and Hebrew. And uh, what I wanted to do was translate all the, the place names, the little towns in Queens, the little areas, into their language. And I asked the uh, school for help. And they said, no, we can't help you with that. You have to do that yourself. So um, I did it off Google Translate. I don't know what these damn things said. I, I painted them on there. They were in every language. I finished the mural, and I gave it to the school teachers. And they said, and I said, um, will you proofread this for me? And they said, no, we're not going to proofread that. That's art. <laughs> so if you want to know the difference between art and design, you don't proofread art. I got one letter from a, a, a Korean woman who said, Dear Miss Cher, I like your mural very much. It makes no sense at all. <laughs> well, I like doing this so much that I, last year, uh, uh, Tyler School of Art, my alma mater, um, asked me to, um, they have an award they give where you, it's an alumni award. You, you go down and you have an exhibit, and the exhibit has to involve the students. So it doesn't really feel much like an award. It feels more like a job. <laughs> but I thought it would be nice to revisit what happened with the school and to paint Philadelphia in this 3,000-foot gallery space, except for I didn't want, to, didn't want to have to do that much work. But it dawned on me if it involved the students, I wouldn't have to do that much work because they could do the work. So I painted a small map of Philadelphia in black and white digitized it, turned it into color, built a model of it, put the model in, this is the space of the gallery. That's sort of how it would look if you went into the gallery. And it has a lot of white spaces that I thought the kids could fill up. So I took a section of the painting. I think the pieces were something like uh, two feet by four feet or something like that. There were slices of paintings. We numbered them and we distributed them to 150 students. And this is the manual they got. They came for a little lecture, and they got the manual, and they got a section of town. The section was key to a map of Philadelphia. And then you could go to Google Maps and find out what went on in that territory. And I made a little sample of what that should be like to show them the sorts of things they could do if they liked to. But the most important thing was the width of the brush strokes. It was actually a style guide for making a painting because it didn't matter what they did or even if they screwed up, as long as the big lines held the whole painting together, they could put any damn thing in there. I was really amazed at the result. I did the floor, which was a rug, and uh, I think it's the least interesting part of the room, um, except for the content of the floor. If you read it, was hilarious, because the whole thing ended up being churches and pizza parlors. That's all that seems to be in Philadelphia. <laughs> Very amazing. Here's the space. And it was tiled out of paper. We push-pinned the paper to the walls, and the rug was installed. And because the map is so busy, it's very forgiving, so that corners and things that attach together 
um, you really don't mind it. It's not, you know, it is paper. It is a made thing. Like here you see the floorboard. What we did is we, we painted the floorboards because the, the paper didn't line up with the rug. And then we would just simply paint over the, um, the uh, little molding and, uh, you know, finish the, the yellow, but you can see sort of the, you know, the uh, light fixtures coming through and the lines of the paper together, and it didn't matter at all. It was sort of a surreal environment that happened with the help of 150 people. So I feel like this is sort of a direction I really want to go in, um, of this kind of communal art, where in a funny way, it's another identity system that gets played out with the help of others and can extend infinitely and have personality and be built and continued and it's a hell of a lot of fun and invite me to do one here. Thank you very much. If you're at all like me, you might be asking yourself right now like, cool, how can I build on this? How can I harness my creativity and, and direct it to the outcomes that I want in life? My answer for you is that whatever stage you're in, whether it's you know, you're pursuing something in your career, hobby, your life, you're just starting, you've been doing this for a while, I wrote a book, I wrote a manual on my recommendations on how you level up. That book is called Creative Calling. It was an instant bestseller. If you're familiar with it, awesome. If you've heard me talk about it, that's great too. But I would love more than anything if you picked up a copy. You can uh, you know, find out more about it and pick up a copy at any, where anywhere books are sold or you can go to creativecalling.com. Uh, I would love if you checked it out. If you haven't already, it would mean the world to me. And I think, again, put 20 years of wisdom into the book and I believe it is the, a fantastic uh, companion to the show. All right. Thank you so much for being a member of this community. Check out the book. Until next time, I bid you adieu.